Microphone check. One, two, three. City, city, sibilance, sibilance. Levels check. Good. Sounds good. One, two, three. Rolling and. I would look at the way that they that they would kind of set up their shoots and set up their productions and realize that what they really need to do is eliminate a lot of barriers. That doesn't only mean just eliminating personnel. Strip down your gear. Do you really need that extra rigging on your camera? Do you really need that extra light package? Do you need that external boom mic? I thought about how everything that can come between you and emotional, physical intimacy with your subject. And the key to that is to get close. Once you get close physically to your subject matter, you don't need a lot of that extra baggage. It's just you, your camera, your microphone, and the subject of your story. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I'm your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 112, and it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film and the Documentary Life podcast. We are joined today by the lovely Stephanie Parkhurst, an amazing mother, wife, business owner, and documentary filmmaker in her own right. Steph, of course, comes onto the program from time to time, sometimes to help me give a state of the union, if you will, on the podcast, other times just to say hello and and connect with you guys. We often get emails from Doc Lifers thanking us for having Steph on the show. I know that there are a number of you who also make docs with your spouses, so there's probably a natural resonance there. I think others just appreciate having a bit of a female voice to even things out a little, and I certainly cannot blame you for that. Now, as most anyone who listens to the show already knows, aka has heard a million times before, Steph and I have been working on our current doc project, Elvis of Cambodia, off and on for the past five years. Really mostly off, since we've been raising two kids, starting up a business, starting up and producing the podcast, freelancing, etc., etc. We started off by coming to Cambodia and filming for about five months, after we'd raised some funding via a Kickstarter campaign. Since that time, other than some fundraising and spates of editing, there hasn't really been a ton of movement on the Elvis front. Of course, that's really changed in the past year. Things have really amped up on the Elvis front. I came back in January and February and did a lot more filming and editing, formed some very important partnerships, started putting together a more succinct plan for how to get the film finished. Much of this was well documented in the opening segments of the first nine episodes of season two in our Chris in Cambodia segments. And thank you everyone for the nice emails and Facebook comments regarding that series. I think that it was an important one to make in both the development of the show and even in the development of our film. In many ways, it brought us even closer to our film. And I sense that in some ways, it also brought you closer to the journey of your own doc films. And now... Here we are today, talking to you from our apartment here in Southeast Asia. That's right, Steph, Flynn, Maya, and I, we're all living once again here in Cambodia. Where and how it all started, although we're not in the capital city, instead this time we've chosen the city of Siem Reap, which is home to the famous temples of Angkor. And we're here to finish our documentary film, and then to tour with the film, screening outdoors in some of the provinces that the star of our doc often sang about. So, Steph, welcome back to the show, and welcome back to Cambodia. I think the first thing we should probably do is get into how exactly we got here. (laughs) How did we get back to Cambodia and why? Although, obviously, I've already mentioned why we're here. Well, it was three airplanes, 26 hours, (laughs) and two very small children. And actually, they did okay, so it was all right. I'm, yeah, making a sandwich in a while. First of all, before I get into this with you, I just want to let people know that I am on day two of a yeah. five-day juice cleanse. So if I sound out of it, that is why. And yeah, please excuse that. And if I sound out of it, I don't really have an excuse, I suppose, at this point. Well, it is hot. Maybe you're just it's like... very, okay. very, very hot. We're in our uh, apartment. We're in our apartment in a room that is like sort of a makeshift studio. We are sweating profusely. We've had to cut the fans and there's no airflow in this room whatsoever. Um, but it's hey, good for you. Yeah, it's, it's good for me. And, and really, it's good for you and your cleanse. Mm-hmm. And it's good for our listeners because... 
hopefully it will make a better sound environment. So we're here, we're in Cambodia, and our intent is to finish the film. It's to finish Elvis of Cambodia. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a lot needs to be done uh, in order for that to take place. But hey, we've been here for well, almost five weeks. And already in the past couple of weeks, we've gotten more done, really, I would argue, Steph, in our film than we have even in the, uh, you know, certainly the past couple of months, we'll say. Yeah, well, it's a lot easier to get things done when you're actually here, obviously, mm. than when you're in the States. And that's been a big issue that we've had this whole time is that True. Um, the first couple of years we were traveling here. And then once we had Maya, our second child, and <laughs> things changed for us, um, we didn't end up coming back here until you came earlier this year. Right. And that's right. why I kind of pushed you to come back earlier in the year, because you may find this with your films um, that... You wait for the perfect opportunity. You wait for the perfect amount of funding and the perfect... I mean, it affects your life. It's not just in terms of financially. It affects what you're doing with your time. And if you have a family, obviously, you have responsibilities and commitments. Um, and I feel like that is a large part of what stopped us from from coming back to finish the film. And then in, earlier in the year, I said to Chris, you know, you just have to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just have to go and, um, there and was start such, the ball rolling. Yeah, because in some ways there was... There just wasn't the kind of movement movement that we had hoped for in the past even few years, you know. And um, yeah, because we're yeah. waiting for the perfect, you know, yeah. not perfect, but we're waiting for things to align in a way that you just have to kind of push forward and make them align. Right. If you just keep going in that direction and have determination to keep pushing forward, things will evolve that you can't even think about that would transpire. So yeah, and that's what's happened to us. And now obviously we are back. And it's very exciting because we are going to finish our film. It is. It is. And and, and we are eager to share uh, more of that journey with you um, as we as we do this, really. Some of you may be thinking, well, how did Chris and Steph get there? Did they, did they secure a bunch of financing for the film? We do have some funding for the film, but not where we'd like it to be in order to really successfully complete it and then tour the countryside with it. And so part of our process, part of the doc filmmaking process and in part of the process in being here right now as we speak, we are in full-blown uh, fundraising mode. Um, I'm, I'm headed out on Sunday. I'm headed out for a week of meeting with people in the capital city, meeting with people and companies, and, and discussing corporate sponsorships and and being a part of this of this important film. And so, you know, we're going to be sharing that journey moving forward. And uh, I, in many ways, it, it's almost as if we will be sharing it real time. I think that's a, that's a bit of our hopes. Mm-hmm. The kind of response I think that we got stuff from you know, doing the Chris in Cambodia segments, you know, even most recently, is that people felt like they related to what was happening more. They felt like they were a part of the film journey and they could then kind of translate that into their own film journey. And uh, I think that that, that that said a lot to us. And and quite frankly, this is our doc lives right now. And if we weren't sharing that with you, it wouldn't feel right, certainly for the show. So... Yeah, you know, there's nothing like firsthand experience, both for yourself as you're learning and evolving as a filmmaker, as a fundraiser, as the business owner, effectively, that you are, um, if you are sustaining yourself through your film. So, and then learning through other people's experiences. There's nothing quite like, you know, that firsthand experience. And even for us, even though we have strategy and we have a plan, we're constantly learning because you come up against new people, new ways of thinking, obviously, depending on what countries you're visiting, that can make a difference like we're here now and so it's much easier for us now to explore the sponsorship angle because we're here and we can meet people face to face as opposed to if we were making a film in the states um it would be easy it could be easier just to be emailing people would be more responsive to that but um here you know it it really is that you need to be meeting people face to face to develop that relationship and we just completed and sent out uh, a grant application to secure funding for when we put together this tour of the the cambodian countryside and so you know when did we have time to do that well being here in cambodia was a big part of that because we'd formed that relationship with the u.s mbc and so we've you know recently just sent that application that grant application out i met with a gentleman you know i went down into a into 
one of the provinces last last week and met up with a gentleman um, who is considering coming on as part of a, a corporate sponsorship as well. Mm-hmm. Um, business owner. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 you know we we are actually bringing on potentially a major character into our film, and we've been filming with him very recently. And so um, you know we suspected that this person might be a character in our film, but we are so far along in our film uh, by not being here. I, I think we just thought it was impossible to bring somebody new on. And so by being in Cambodia, it has allowed us the kind of access that we didn't have, obviously, being overseas. Um, so, yeah, a lot has been done even in two or three weeks from being here mm-hmm. um, that that, uh, that hadn't happened, obviously, and couldn't happen without being here. Um, yeah. I would really love to know how many people listening to this um, are considering moving themselves and potentially their families to another country to make their film and how many people are just planning to travel to make their film and then return i mean if you're planning to film outside of your own country obviously oh no not necessarily i suppose you could live in one state and be relocating to another so yeah or province i would be really interested to know that because yeah, yeah, that's just how we have decided to do it. But I suppose there are multiple ways. Like you could have come here for several months yeah. and, and done the work. Right, and right. I suppose if your partner's not part of the project with you, maybe that is, you know, obviously people have their own jobs. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and we are like fortunate in that, aren't we? That we both worked in this together and that we can travel together as a family. But yeah, if you'd like to share your experiences, I would love to hear them. You can email chris at chris at barongfilms.com. Yeah. And even, you know, even in some of those emails, we'd also encourage you to tell us, you know, what, uh, you know, we're always in an effort to, to kind of make the show better and understand uh, what it is that is going to best help you in your doc lives and, and doc films. Share with us if, um, you know, having Steph occasionally maybe onto the program and, 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 and having a candid conversation or open a conversation like that. Do you like that? Do you enjoy that? Of course um, they like that. Of course they do. I do. It <laughs> makes my job a lot easier. Uh, and also, you know, the Chris and Cambodia segments, we've mentioned that a couple of times. There seemed That seemed to really resonate with a lot of people. Um, we got some really good feedback on that. And so, you know, let us know if that sort of thing truly is helpful for, for you. You know, I, I think we've obviously said moving forward, we're going to be doing that here, certainly for the next, I would say, even the next few months, sharing our own experiences and our journeys with our film in an effort to connect with you and, and your doc lives and your doc films. Um, and so let us know how that helps you and better serve you. Mm-hmm. And again, the email, email is one way, chris at barongfilms.com. Um, and certainly you can post on our the Documentary Life Community Facebook group. Okay, so so I guess moving forward, I'll be heading out uh, for a week, meeting up with individuals and companies and organizations, discussing corporate sponsorships, and uh, again, in full-blown kind of fundraising mode. Um, I'll be doing that next week, and so I imagine I'll be discussing that a little bit, um, certainly my experiences doing that. Yeah, so I'm looking forward, obviously, to talking about that in our next show, but moving forward, I think there's going to be a bit more of that, isn't there? So over the next few months, we will definitely be keeping you up to date with our journey here in Cambodia of us making our film, additional fundraising that we're going to be garnering for the film, how we're doing it, what it looks like, what's worked, what hasn't worked. And we ourselves, we're learning so much as we go along. You know, I don't think you ever stop learning when you're making documentary films. Um, Things evolve and also different films, different mindsets, different practices different things work and we'll share with you fundraising for the film and how we're progressing on actually making the film (laughs) and you know our preparations for our tour and all the independent distribution that we're going to be doing next year great well i think you've really set me up for the next few episodes Mm -hmm. i'm i'm concerned about that no joking aside i I look forward to it i think it's great Uh, i'm excited to do it i'm excited for our film i'm excited for the podcast and i'm excited to hear more from you doc lifer about your own journey with your own films So with that being said, thanks for coming on again, Steph. I'm sure our listeners appreciate that as much as I did. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Next up on The Documentary Life, our conversation with a doc industry guest. And I do think that you'll like this one because it really follows on from a lot that we've said already today. Thanks again for joining us on The Documentary Life. If you're anything like me, when it comes to doc film preparations, checklists are an essential part of that preparation. Whether it's putting together a gear list, storyline notes for an edit, or gathering materials for a grant application, checklists are very helpful in ensuring that we're prepared for whatever may lie ahead in our doc journeys. 
which is why Steph and I have put together a very special offering for you, a free eight-chapter course we're calling the Independent Doc Filmmaker's Essential Checklist. We believe that given the right strategy and insight, every doc filmmaker can achieve their goals and intentions with their films, that there is money out there for every project, and that every film can be met by an active, eagerly anticipating audience, and that includes yours. This course will take you closer to that outcome. To enroll in the Independent Doc Filmmakers Essential Checklist course, just head on over to thedocumentarylife.com slash courses. It's free, and just as we do here on the show, this eight-chapter checklist course will inspire and inform you on your documentary film journey. Speaking today with writer and filmmaker Rustin Thompson, along with his wife and filmmaking partner, writer Ann Hedrine, they own White Noise Productions and have produced more than 160 short documentaries for nonprofit organizations. Their feature length films include 30 Frames a Second, the WTO in Seattle, which won several Best Documentary Awards, as well as their latest documentary, a memoir film called My Mother Was Here. Rustin, welcome to the documentary Life. Thank you for agreeing to come out of the program today. Sure, thank you. Now, Rustin, in going through your bio on your on your personal website, I found something interesting that jumped out to me. So I'd like to take a moment and read that back. And, and this is what you have written. Before I became a filmmaker, I worked as a cameraman, editor, producer in local TV news in Reno, Colorado Springs, and Seattle. In the 90s, I freelanced as a CBS news cameraman and won a national Emmy for a series of stories shot in North Korea. During my time with CBS, I was paid well, traveled often, stayed in sweet hotels on an expense account, and worked a lot of overtime. I've never made that kind of money since. So Rustin, I ask you, tell us why on earth you would leave this lucrative, cushy work behind to pursue your documentary passions? Well, that's a great question. And that's sort of the beginning of, of everything. When I pivoted to becoming a documentary filmmaker, um, I was... Uh, a freelancer, as I said, working with my sound person um, who also lives in Seattle. And we were uh, spending a lot of our time on the road in those hotel rooms shooting for major uh, CBS evening programs. And we found that our creative juices were sort of pooling on the floor as we spent most of our time setting up two camera interviews with <laughs> 10, 12, 15 lights we would bring in a producer, we'd bring in a reporter, uh, we would have the, the subject sitting there, we would end up doing these two to three hour, two camera interviews, and then we would shoot maybe a half hour of rather meaningless B-roll of the two people walking <laughs> along the street. Yeah, and this, this was becoming the norm of my work. And I came from a background of being just a, a film buff, a lover of films, yeah. watching 200, 300 movies a year. Yeah and dreaming and scheming and thinking of like, how can I become a filmmaker? Yeah. But I was, I had these golden handcuffs. We got paid really well, but there were a number of things going on. Not only was I creatively stymied because I would never see where my work ended up. Um, I might catch it on the evening news and the, the hours and hours of footage that we shot would end up being about 30 seconds in the, in the final piece. Mm. I was also away a lot and we had two young kids. My wife was home with them. Mm. I was not only missing a lot of moments with my children growing up, but I was also uh, not there to help my wife in the moments that weren't so great, yeah, you know? Right, and, right. uh, so we, we just had, a, we had to talk about it and said, I, I want to get out of this business and it's going to be financially difficult for a few years. But, we made this decision right around the time that uh, all of the new digital technology was coming out. This is in the late 1990s. I first got a little tiny one chip camera and started playing around with that while I was still working for the networks. And then the uh, the WTO demonstrations happened in Seattle in 1999. And I decided then to sort of cut ties with the network and go down to the streets with my little one chip camera and just start shooting, just start filming everything. Um, not really knowing what I was going to do with the footage. 
So when that was over with, and I sat on the footage for a couple of months, I decided I'm going to try to turn this into a documentary. Mm-hmm. I, I, by that time, I knew how to edit. Yeah. Um, I had worked in, in TV news enough uh, in my earlier uh, stage in, in Seattle, Washington, at a, at a TV news station where I kind of learned all the basics of editing and shooting and even producing and a little writing. So I said, well, I'm going to get back to that. I'm going to try to do this. So I basically I rented an Avid for $2,000 a week. Yeah. Um, and I had edited a little bit on an Avid, so I had kind of understood the, the architecture of it. Um, and in two weeks, I can only afford it for a week. I rented the Avid, brought it to my house, sat down, edited my documentary in a week. I recorded narration into a shotgun microphone on my Betacam camera uh, and, and, and basically made this short film. I mean, not short film, made the feature film yeah. and had it done and then wasn't sure what to do with it. Um, I decided then to just start sending it out to a few few film festivals. So that was the, to, to sum up the, the answer to, the, to your question. That was sort of the beginning. And I realized, oh, my God, this is what I want to do. I want to make films where I am the author from beginning to end. Yeah. I want to plan the project. I want to shoot it. I want to write it. I want to edit it. I want to get it out to the world any way I can. And from that documentary, my wife and I also looked up one day and said, what we really want to do is to pay the bills is we want to make films for, for nonprofit organizations. And that's when we formed our company, white noise productions in 2000 and started finding clients who wanted our type of documentary style work, uh, to tell the story of these, of these organizations. So that, that's when we started actually earning money. (laughs) So we thought, okay, we made the transition. It was difficult, but now we're making money and that's what we've been doing for the last 19 years, but we've never, ever made as much as I was making when I was a CBS cameraman. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're definitely speaking to a lot of our sensibilities in many ways. I certainly have yet to even approach what what uh, what I've been making commercially. So um, you're definitely, yeah. Uh, yeah, I definitely hear you there. And not only that, Rustin, um, one, you know, your story is not unlike, I think, a lot of what, what a number of my, our listeners have experienced, in, including my myself, which is, which is a bit of a TV news background. And in doing these sort of finite packages every single day, it's a grind and you're creating these 30 second, maybe 60 second packages or, or you know, God forbid, a two minute piece, right? And, uh, mm-hmm. but one thing that, that we, that I think so many of us doc filmmakers, you know, who had worked and spent time doing TV news production, what we really felt dis or unsatisfied with was, you know, the lack of depth that's, that, that was happening in these stories. So many times I would so go like- out on a story and of course it's done right in, in a matter of hours on that day. And I left with a feeling of like, wow, I know and everybody around me knows there is so much more to that story. And man, this would make something far more engaging if it were a longer piece. And so I yeah. always I always had this unsettled or unsatisfying feeling of like, man, I'm not telling a story here at all. This is just for quick consumption. And I know you right. know what I'm speaking of. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you know what the grind was like. But I got to tell you, and you, you'll, you'll probably agree with this and a lot of your listeners will, too, that. It was in that grind yes. where I learned th- all the tools. Uh, I, I was learned, just going to say, I know exactly where you're going with this. Go, please go ahead. Yeah, I learned. I learned how to shoot. I learned how to shoot efficiently. I learned how to come into a situation, assess it quickly, get the angles, uh, get the sound bite. I've, oftentimes, running sound myself. Yeah. Uh, figure out how to light if I needed to light, or yeah. how to make it work if I couldn't light it, and get the nugget of the story, get the sound bite that you need. And then come back to the station. And uh, in the in the smaller markets I was working on, I was able to edit everything I shot. Yeah. When I got to uh, the Seattle market, um, I I could only edit on my own sort of sideline projects at the station. I had to hand it over to an editor yeah. for the for the evening news. But but I learned I learned how to edit. I learned how to shoot. I learned how to to tell a story. Um, I had to follow journalistic principles. Uh, it, it was a fantastic training ground. And if I hadn't had that early foundation, I would not have been able to transition to having my own business and working as a lean team uh, almost exclusively with my my wife, who's a producer and writer uh, in making 
these short films and making our documentaries. So that was the training ground. Absolutely. It's the perfect training ground, as you said, uh, certainly for the one and two person crew documentary film situations, which uh, so many of us are in and uh, in many ways gladly embrace and which really is a perfect segue in many ways to the book that you have just released called Get Close, Lean Team Documentary Filmmaking. Um, it's all about this in many ways. So Rustin, what is Lean Team Doc Filmmaking? It is a type of filmmaking in which you work either either as a one or two person team from beginning to end on your film. Um, and it not only frees you up to have your own artistic stamp on a film, but it also strips away and eliminates so many of the barriers that stand between a filmmaker starting a film and finishing a film in the reality of today's documentary industry. The motivation for the book came about just a few years ago, uh, I started thinking about it when I was meeting so many filmmakers who were frustrated about the length of time it was taking them to finish a film yeah. and the amount of money they needed to get and the and the number of networking forums they needed to go to or pitching or the work in progress screenings they needed to have. Yeah. And and people were just they were feeling overwhelmed by this. And I looked at their their filmmaking model and said, well, you're making it way too too difficult. <laughs> you know, you you have you have too many people on your team. You don't feel confident in your shooting and editing. So you're hiring people to do that, mm. even though you can probably shoot and you can probably edit if you just give yourself some time to learn. And you are also constantly feeling compromised by trying to mold, adapt, kind of wrangle your story into yeah. what you think the market wants. That's right. Or so I, film festivals or yeah, yeah, distribution. Yeah, all of that. Right. And I would look at the way that they that they would kind of set up their shoots and set up their productions and realize that what they really need to do is eliminate a lot of barriers. That doesn't only mean just eliminating personnel, meaning maybe get rid of the sound person who's holding that boom in front of somebody's face. Mm -hmm. Maybe get rid of the producer standing off to the side who's like hovering and looking. Maybe get rid of the assistants that you don't need. Yeah. Yeah. Also with your gear strip down your gear. Do you really need that extra rigging on your camera? Do you really need uh, that extra light package? Do you need that external sound, uh, that external boom mic? I, I, I thought about how everything that can come between you and yes. emotional, physical intimacy with your subject. And the key to that, the key to that, which is the title of the book, is to get close. Once you get close physically to your subject matter, you don't need a lot of that extra baggage. It's just you, your camera, your microphone, and the subject of your story. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the motivation for the idea of of lean team documentary filmmaking, which frankly, this is kind of the only way I've worked uh, in the last 20 years. It, we yeah. we don't hire assistants, we don't bring in uh, extra producers. Uh, we do get feedback on our work, obviously, but we do not we, we we prefer this sort of single-minded idea of this is a story we want to tell. This is the personal stamp we're going to put on it. We're the author from beginning to end. We own the success and we also own the, the failures of it. Well, it's interesting because a lot nowadays you hear like these terms of, you know, essential or essentialism or minimalism being thrown mm-hmm. around and, uh, and, and with good reason. And I think in, in many ways – what you're talking about here with your lean team documentary filmmaking, it's really st- you know stripping out what is non-essential and getting down to the bare bones of what is essential in both how you approach your filmmaking as well as as the really essential elements to a story. And and another thing about that is it makes me think of and, and this by the way totally makes sense given your t- given your TV news background as well as all of the work that you did creating NGO videos because I know working in certainly developing countries and working in places like Nepal or Cambodia or Indonesia or Haiti, a lot of these places, what worked best for me was when I was stripped down as essential, as lean as possible in my approach to the storytelling and as well as the gear itself and the amount of manpower. It simply would not have been appropriate, for instance, when I was shooting uh, uh, my film Journey to Kathmandu in Nepal out in mm-hmm. the rural hilltop villages. It would not have have been appropriate at all for me to have a massive camera lighting many people as as part of the crew it had to be way way more stripped down as you know working in these communities yourself it's already sort of imposing enough 
just being there yourself uh, with a camera, right? So it's right. it's all of this lends it lends itself to this idea of lean team approach to doc filmmaking. I love it. You know, one of my my many catchphrases in the book is that lean team filmmaking will liberate you. And what that means is it's not only going to liberate you physically in the field to just move much more easily, you know, around the the sort of geography of a scene, but it's also going to liberate you to have your own artistic vision for what you're doing. And, and that to me is really the, the sort of essential part of this whole idea is that it's liberating and it liberates you from a lot of the financial burdens you feel like you have to take on in order to have what's what's an accepted uh, film, and you know, in in the in the doc yeah. industry. Yeah. So it's 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 liberating to 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 take on this new aspect of it's just you and your camera and the, and the subject that you're covering. It's uh, it's it's freeing. Well, it is, and but but I'll, I'll kind of um, play a devil's advocate for a moment because I know sure. that there are people out here thinking this. You, you spoke about financials, and I would ask you because I'm sure that there are people out there listening to this who feel like, okay, Rustin, that's great and all, and that's a great idealistic sort of approach to this. But I want my film to be seen to to, to right. large amounts of people, and I want my film to actually be able to pay me back some money. I, you know, so can can people make some kind of a living? producing films in this fashion? I think it's, to be totally honest, I think it's um, difficult to make an independent documentary pay you back. I think that's very difficult. However, uh, as you know, and as as I know, um, if you can turn your lean team documentary skills into these sort of smaller scale projects, like making films for nonprofits or NGOs, you can make money. Um, and that was one of the things we identified when we first started our businesses, that we would see these nonprofit videos that people would show at these luncheons and fundraisers. And they would usually get a, a pro bono. Uh, they would get a pro bono team <laughs> yeah. from the local news to do it. Oh, yeah. And they were horrible. Yeah, they were horrible. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. they were like glorified news stories. Yeah. And we said, wow, there's got to be a better way. So we would we would apply. We contacted a few of these these nonprofits, convinced them about what we could do. They would see the result, and that led to more work. And what we did is said, we, we said, we are applying our documentary-style filmmaking instincts to telling your story. Right. And they saw the worth and the power in that. So we were able to make money that way. However, independent document, documentary filmmaking is different. It is extremely difficult to make any money on your doc film. And that is because the industry, there's a glut in the industry of these films. There's only a few film festivals that are considered uh, the type of festival where potential buyers are going to come to see your work. Those festivals are extremely difficult to get into. Unfortunately, uh, there's almost this sort of like perverse standard now in the industry where the larger your budget, the more acceptable your film is for for a film festival. And to me, that's ridiculous. I made my first film, 30 frames a second, for $2,000. I know I didn't pay myself back, but I only, I, you know, it's like I still had, I had an income doing other things. But $2,000, yeah. and I was able to get it into like 15 film festivals and, and get it on Netflix and get it distributed by Bullfrog Films. And I still get quarterly checks 20 years later, yeah. not big ones, but it's, you know, it's yeah, still yeah, out yeah. there. And um, that cannot happen today. I, you, the the industry has set up this whole sort of paywall <laughs> that you have to you have to hurdle over, climb over in order to get accepted. Now, there there is always exceptions. There's always a film that's gonna that's gonna disprove that rule, mm. um, and they will make some money based on a very on a very small investment at the beginning. Right. But right. I think I think one of the things I'm trying to do with this book is. I'm trying to, speaking of liberating people, freeing them up from this idea that this is the only marker of success is getting into Sundance or South by Southwest, yeah. getting on Netflix or getting on Amazon oh, Prime. Yeah, yeah. you definitely speak to the sensibilities of this program. <laughs> yeah, because because that is mostly that's unrealistic for most people. That's and right. so many filmmakers spend way too much time and too much money chasing that. Yes. Um, so I'm trying to say, like, take a step back and think about why are you why are you doing this kind of work? Why are you living the documentary life, because mm. what it really means, as you know, is really like loving the medium and loving the storytelling and loving working with the tools and loving telling these stories 
But if you're only telling a story every seven years, because most of that time is spent fundraising and going to pitching sessions and forums and trying to sell your film to people sitting on a panel somewhere, then you're not making films. Yeah. You're, you are spending most of your time marketing. So I, 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 one of the things I do in my book, and it's a little bit controversial, is I try to tell people, you know, reset your expectations, have modest expectations mm -hmm. or realistic expectations about what you're doing with your work. It's like, okay, what's acceptable to you? A few sort of mid-tier film festivals, smaller documentary film festivals, self-distribution on Vimeo or YouTube, maybe only educational distribution, which actually I think educational is a great way to go because you know a lot of people are going to see your film um, if it gets into universities. So reduce your expectations as you reduce your team, as you eliminate barriers, mm. and, you, and you reduce your budget as well. So you, you can make a film for 20,000, 25,000, yeah. 50,000. That's even paying yourself back. Right, you, right. Can, you can make a film for that kind of budget or even less. <laughs> if, if all you've got yeah. is, is your 5,000 you invested in your camera and your editing software, then make a film with that. We're speaking with filmmaker and author of the book, Get Close, Lean Team Documentary Filmmaking, Rustin Thompson. Rustin, I'd like to talk a little bit about chapter four in your book, The Shoot, Field Production mm -hmm. in the Lean Team Style. And so can you give us give us some of your Lean Team Field Production basics that might help us that we should be aware of? Okay. So um, what I first do before that chapter is I lay out the Lean Team Essential tool Toolkit, yes. which is essential gear and the supporting equipment you can you can take on a shoot that you can manage let's just talk about it as a one-person team that you can manage as a one-person team so i give the basics of the camera the microphone uh a tripod uh an onboard light and then some backup gear that you might keep in your car or uh, when you go out on location and so you 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 come in with this essential gear and i always recommend that people own their own camera because renting a camera, you there are so many different little variables in cameras that you need to get used to. So when you own your own camera, you, you sort of become friends with it. You understand how it works. You understand its limitations, the things it can do well. And, and so you, you show up on the shoot with the knowledge of your gear. You have the right gear. And you've already spent time evaluating your project according to this lean team model. So you know that you can shoot in a lean team fashion on location with this subject matter. So you get there and you start out with this idea of getting close. You you tell your subjects like, I like to get close. I'm gonna get really close to you sometimes. And you, you do that right away so they become comfortable with you right away. I'm still to this day amazed at how uh, the, the person or the people you're shooting will rather quickly ignore your presence even if you're hovering over their shoulder mm. or standing inches from their face. I'm amazed at how adaptable people are to that. And I think part of that is because you're not coming with a lot of gear. It's just you yeah. and this other person and you're communicating yeah. um, through that. So you, the, the physical closeness is important. So then you, you, you come into a scene and you sort of survey the geography of the scene. You look where the lighting is. You look how, uh, where the, the, the sort of boundaries of the space that you're shooting are. Um, you yeah. see how many other people are in the scene that you might have to jockey and deal with. And uh, I, I always try to get the basics right away. I always try to get the, the wide shot, the medium shot, the close-ups. I try to get the cutaways, uh, uh, the reaction shots. I try to get the basics uh, as soon as I can for a particular scene. And then after I do that, and I'm sure that, okay, if nothing else, I know I can cut at least some few seconds of this together yeah, together to make yeah. it coherent for a viewer. Then I start going in for more of the emotional or more of the, the sort of artistically daring ideas. I'll change, I'll, I'll get different angles, I'll get a lot of foreground, or I might just say like, I am just going to stay locked on this person's face for as long as I can, because I want to see their, their emotion. I want to see how they are dealing with whatever activity they're doing. So I'm always I'm, I, I'm always thinking when I go into a scene about all the essentials of filmmaking, lighting, sound and the basics of the shot. And but then also, how am I going to inform this part of the story emotionally? And I'm always thinking in terms of editing. I'm always thinking about getting enough angles to cut. And I'm always thinking about sound because sound to me is the is one of the essentials of 
what you're doing out in the field because sound can be used in editing to uh, to work in a lot of more imaginative ways than just recording basic audio. Right. You can use you can use it creatively to sort of move your story along or to cue people into an upcoming scene uh, to focus their attention on a moment. So so it's really a matter of limiting those barriers, getting close, studying the geography of a scene and then just becoming almost kind of invisible in in that in that arena that you're shooting in. I think it's safe to assume that a two camera setup is not what you're talking about here. <laughs> no, no, I um, vehemently advocate against that. Um, and I quote uh, Werner Herzog in my book. Yeah, yeah. Um, Werner Herzog says that shooting two cameras is completely unnecessary and wasteful. I can't remember the exact quote, but I think he said it's uh, and I don't mean to criticize people who do this, but he, yeah, yeah, <laughs> he said yeah, something yeah. like it's it's a coward's way of of covering a scene because then you're not bold enough to make sure that you get everything you need yourself. And I also think it's distracting. Right. I, I think it's distracting not only in the shooting, not only for the person with the two cameras pointing at them, but also in editing. I've seen so many documentaries. Yeah, the viewing of it afterwards. Totally. Yeah. A talking head is talking and they keep switching between angles. And I'm thinking like, what is the point of this? Yeah. I just, all I'm seeing are, all I'm aware of are the changing of the angles. I completely lose interest in what the person is saying. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, Rustin, is that, does this also hold true with, for instance, shooting a, shooting an interview, one camera, but shooting that interview 4k. And so it gives you the latitude to cut in, right? If you're, you know, operating yeah. in, in like a 1920 timeline, do you feel the same way? Is it kind of lazy filmmaking by, by doing a two ca two camera shoot, two camera interview or shooting that interview 4k? Um, I, I, I don't think it's necessary. I know I said, it, uh, it's, cowardly <laughs> I don't know it's fine this is this is my these are my words absolutely okay absolutely I don't, right so and I don't I don't so I don't necessarily mean it's lazy I think a lot of people can work that way I I think that it uh, the, the two camera shoot does give you an out that I think is harmful to the final project so that's why I wouldn't do it 4k I don't have a problem with that hey I've shot I've shot 1080 interviews where I've I've like cut to a closer shot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, so, so it's, uh, and for the type of work that we do, the mo nearly all of it ends up online. Yeah. No one notices, notices no the one's resolution say, change. Right. Right. They don't notice it. Yeah. And it's very minimal. So, so I don't have, I don't have a problem with that. Sometimes you're going to get into that situation. Yeah. Now, Werner Herzog does have a problem with that. Maybe he'll change his mind now, but I, I don't have a problem with shooting 4k or in, in order to, to, you know, jump cut closer to, yeah. to a headshot. That, that's okay. Now, we talk a lot about in the program, and of course, you've already mentioned this as well, the importance of sound. In fact, you know, I would argue, and I think there are a lot of other filmmakers out there that would also argue, at times, sound kind of trumps, uh, forgive that word, by the way, trumps, <laughs> yeah. sound, wow. tr sound uh, perhaps, um, sound over video in certain moments, sound over image. Uh, mm -hmm. So let's talk about that because it's it's not yeah. always easy having to wear all these hats as the one person crew, right, or the one man band. So it's right. uh, you know what are some practical tips that we can be using if we're also responsible for our own sound? Right. Ever since I stopped working for the networks where I had a sound person, I have never used a sound person since. So oh, the last yeah. twenty years, everything wow, wow. we've done, we're working in third world countries. Yeah. Um, so so I I feel like I've got a system that is proven. To work and the essentials are that um, I have the onboard shotgun microphone yeah. and believe it or not I've almost always used the the mic that comes with my camera. Oh really? And, okay, yeah. you're and actually straight going onboard for one straight onboard okay. right into my camera. Okay. So first of all, the key is you got to have XLR inputs on yeah. your camera. Yeah. Uh, so I've got the two XLR inputs that I uh, I can separate if I need to. And uh, I always have the onboard shotgun mic going into one input. And then the other input, if it's called for in the shoot, is a wireless mic. Yeah. So I've got a wireless on uh, either uh, the, the, the the central talent or the, um, the subject matter if I'm filming them, uh, you know, in an activity, uh, or I will have a, a wireless that I sometimes will just set on a table and disguise with something. Yeah. If I'm filming a group of kids, maybe making art on a table in a classroom, right. or I'm filming some people, uh, in a meeting or there's a choir that's singing and I might take a, a wireless and, uh, and put it up near them and then have two, but I'll always have those channels separated so I can have two different 
two different channels to go to two different depths in the shot. So I can have one, I can have my wireless up close and my shotgun getting sort of the ambient. And I have, I have found that system as long as my batteries are good and I'm, yeah. and I'm monitoring the sound. That's the other key is using headphones, using good headphones yeah. while you're shooting. Cause you have to monitor. And if you've got those channels separated, you know, what's going on. And that is essential, I think, to becoming your own, the author of your own work because you're listening to everything and you're understanding how that sound is going to inform maybe the next shot you get, the way you move in the scene. And you're also, while you're listening, thinking like, ah, that's a great bit of sound I, I could maybe use in yeah, editing and totally. it's interesting. So I, I have always preferred that. When I worked with a sound person in shooting CBS News, we worked well as a team, but it was, it, to me, it was always more difficult to make sure that the mic was out of the shot mm. or that I was always communicating with the sound guy or he was, he was telling me something's over here. I was telling him, go run over there and get the shot. I, I, I manage my time in the field to, to make it work with those, uh, that very simple microphone setup and it's always worked for me that's it's pretty damn similar to, to my own setup which is uh -huh. you know i'll you know obviously the two xlr inputs i'll you know i'll put a like a uh, i'll put a road shotgun mic on top of my camera run that into one line and then have the lavalier in the other line now what i'll add to this is that you know what if you're you're gonna love this by the way because this is very old <laughs> school i don't if i can avoid it i still if i can avoid it will try and not use a wireless lav. I will use an actual old school wired lav if I'm on a sit down interview. And it's amazing <laughs> the looks I get from people because they're just like, now what what uh, yeah. century did you come in from? <laughs> what is this <laughs> wire you're running to me while, for this uh -huh, sit down interview? Uh -huh. But I have just been burned one too many times. And if I'm going to be responsible for not only conducting the interview, but getting the video and also the audio, I just don't want to be bothered with having to deal with any kind of interference, which I've had to deal with one too many times. And so if I can, if I'm in a sit down setting, I will nine times out of 10 go wired. Otherwise, obviously, if you're on the run and doing any kind of running gun stuff, you're using the wireless lav. But um, I had to throw I, that in there because I know that you would appreciate that. I, and I do. And I do that, too. <laughs> um, and it's it's the the extra wired microphone. The extra wired lav yeah. is uh, a part of my essential supporting equipment. I have this like basic seven essentials of a toolkit, but then in the supporting is that extra lavalier because you do not want to get burned uh, if, you're, if your wireless isn't working. Brilliant, brilliant. So as we kind of make our way towards the latter part of this, of this, uh, of this conversation, which has been absolutely wonderful, by the way, Rustin. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Let's talk a little bit about post-production. What is a lean okay. team approach that you, that you have towards uh, to post-production? Well, this is this is the, the stumbling block for a lot of people. And I certainly understand that. And I and I talk about that in the book that that I I realize that editing for people who are just completely flummoxed by the, the, the demands of the software can kind of stop you dead. And I, I think this happens a lot in real life documentary filmmaking where people start out with a lean team, like the person going out with their camera and they're getting all this stuff. Then they come back with all this stuff um, and they realize they have no idea what to do. So that's when they go and try to raise $50,000 to pay 45000 of that to the editor. Yeah, uh, because, <laughs> right. Because the top-notch documentary film editors are expensive. And this is where I try to say, try not to fall for that. You can learn how to edit in a few simple steps, but you have to practice just like everything else. You got to practice. You got to sit down and you got to do it. You got to play around with it. You got to just figure out the basics of sound about about your 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 video tracks and your audio tracks. Yeah. And once you do that, you might just find that not only is it not as difficult as you think, but it's also really fun. Yeah. And this is where the creative imagination comes most into your work and where you think like, oh, this stuff I shot in the field, I'm now turning it into a film. This is amazing. <laughs> the other thing about that is, um, I'm not getting essentially to, the, to your point, but the other thing about that is that you become a better cinematographer oh, by editing your own stuff always and you become a better editor by shooting your own stuff they yeah. are just to me they're inseparable so i just i i kind of started very basically i said okay i understand a lot of you aren't going to want to do this but if you can here's how you start i give very simple organizational tools i think but i think the essential architecture of all these programs are the same and the essential idea which is you've got to start with organizing your footage so i tell people how to make your make your bins or your folders yeah. or your projects your events 
and label your footage, get them in these folders and throw out the stuff right away. That's crap that, you know, you're not going to use. Uh, just don't, I mean, it's going to be somewhere. It's either going to be on your camera card or you might have it on a saved drive, but for your editing, just, just have the, the stuff that's good that you think this is, this is worthy footage. I don't know how I'm going to use it yet, but I might get it in there and, you know, establish your music bins, your sound effect bins, maybe your, uh, I have a little bin that I do called, uh, called texture where I put shots that just kind of give mood and metaphor yeah, and yeah. things like that. Um, and so you start with the organizing. Then I say, start with very, uh, uh, just a very few tracks, a couple of video tracks, maybe six audio tracks and start building your film from beginning to end, knowing that you can always go back and add and take away and everything. And, and I really try to get people to think about how they can use sound as a separate element from video to drive the for story forward. Oh, man, so yeah. it's, it's not, it's, it's not easy. I'll say that it's not easy, but I think especially nowadays when everybody is so, uh, you know, so savvy about computers, I think people could learn how to edit. And I think it's so important to becoming the author of your own work, which is the essential kind of message I'm trying to give in my book is, is, is experience this sort of creative joy of becoming the author of your work. And, and you will at least at the very end, even if your film doesn't get into Sundance, you're going to be able to look at your film and say, you know, I'm really proud of this. I made this myself. And this is my artistic expression here from beginning to end. And, and I think the editing is just such an essential component of that. The book is Get Close, Lean Team Documentary Filmmaking, authored by filmmaker Rustin Thompson. Uh, Rustin, this has been a fantastic conversation. It took me a while to get to your book, but then when I did, I just remember looking at Steph and I'm like, oh, oh, Steph, I think we need to have Rustin on the program. Like he literally, this book is speaking to the heart of what we are all about and and, and what we talk about and, and who our listeners are. I love this book. It's perfect for I'm, it. So I'm so glad, Chris, because I, I've known about your website for a long time and I, I, I don't hear everything that you've done, but I thought the, this this guy's doing what I'm writing about in my book and yeah, it'd be yeah. so great to get oh. on your show. And so I really, I really appreciate it. And I, 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 I wish you like great luck in all of your endeavors. Yeah. It sounds like you're out there living this documentary life. So that's, that's great. Obviously there's many different ways to get this yeah. book. Do you have a preferred method? Well, it is available many different ways. My publisher is Oxford University Press. You can get it there. Uh, of course, it's going to be a little cheaper on Amazon. Yeah. I always, always urge people to call up their uh, local independent bookstore, order the book mm. through them, mm. uh, and and you can get it. I I I can call up my local store and and have a copy in in five days. Yeah. Um. You can also it'd be helpful to uh, contact all of your local libraries and say you want the book on the shelves. I did that for our library. Oh, wow. It's also available uh, as an as an ebook. Uh, so you can get it that way. So many, many different ways to get it. Fantastic. And obviously we will have links up in the show notes to this book, as well as links to two trailers for your films. As we wrap up here, is there anything that you might like to impart to any of our filmmakers out there that maybe we haven't missed and you would have liked that we said today? I, I think we, we, we covered everything, but I, I, I think the main takeaway is if if you adopt this lean team documentary filmmaking style, and I think you know this, Chris, that you can become a, what I call a constant filmmaker. Mm. Um, and I, and that's something I kind of lifted from something that uh, the, the late great actor Dennis Hopper said a long time ago. Mm. He was a guy that was that he called himself a constant creator. If he wasn't acting, he was producing, directing, and he was taking a lot of great photographs. And he said, I'm just a constant creator. He just loved the artistic fulfillment of creating. And that's what I, I hope that people who make documentaries will become. It's like, I want to become a constant filmmaker. I want to, I, I just love the medium so much. I want to make films. Rustin, what a conversation. Thank you so much for being on The Documentary Life. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it. Don't forget, if you're interested in our free eight-part course, The Independent Doc Filmmaker's Essential Checklist Course, go to thedocumentarylife.com slash courses. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you in two weeks' time, Doc Lifer. Doc Lifer.